The following podcast contains explicit language. Hello and welcome to Sex Lives, the New York Magazine sex podcast. I'm David Wallace-Wells, and with me today are Maureen O'Connor, New York sex columnist. Hey, Maureen. Hey, David. And our first guest host turned first repeat guest host, Rich Joswiak of Gawker. Hey, Rich. Sup. And uh, also here today is Jesse Single from the Science of Us, New York's social science site. Jesse, thanks for coming. Thank you. We've got a crowded room today to talk mostly about why and in what circumstances men who think of themselves as straight might find themselves having sex with other men or in any event doing sex-like things with them. Uh, Jesse did a pretty great interview with a professor named Jane Ward who's got a new book out about the subject. We're also going to be talking about Tinder and the dawn of the dating apocalypse, a sort of hilariously fear-mongery story in Vanity Fair by Nancy Jo Sales about all the sex that all the kids on, I think, college campuses mostly are having. Is that right? 20-year-olds. No, just yeah, everyone. Just everybody. Right now, everybody. So let's move on to our first topic, straight men boning straight men. Culturally, Americans are pretty comfortable with the idea of fluid female sexuality, but we've had a much harder time talking about it when it comes to men. And in this new book, um, which is called Not Gay, Sex Between Straight White Men, Jane Ward, who's a professor of women's studies at UC Riverside, gives a history of straight male, straight male sexual encounters to show that same-sex encounters are a much bigger part of what we think of as straight male sexuality than we've ever, I guess, publicly understood. Maybe, Jesse, you could give us a little bit more of a background introduction to the book and what she's trying to do with it. Yeah. So um, Ward's main point is that like ever since homosexuality and heterosexuality have been categories that we recognize, uh, men who identify as, as straight have, as she put it, looked for excuses to touch other men's anuses. Um, and this has occurred like in contexts we're familiar with, like prisons and the military, there have also been uh, so-called tea rooms where sort of conservative straight men would, would go to designated rest stops uh, to have sex with other self-identifying straight men. The point being that all these men forever who have identified as straight has have seemed to find themselves in position where they're engaging in homosexual activities. When this happens with white men, usually the way people explain it are either these men are actually bisexual or gay and they're repressed, they don't want to admit who they really are, or there's something about the situation, about being in the military, about being in a frat that sort of compels them to act in this way. So she wants to sort of open up a conversation about another possibility, which is in much the same way we recognize that two college girls making out at a bar could actually be straight, but just sort of experimenting because sexuality is fluid and complicated. She says, why can't we say the same thing about straight men? Why can't there be a version of heterosexuality that has space for some homosexual experiences? I think the most surprising thing to me is the way that she argues that it's not about attraction to a body, but what the body represents. Essentially, what she's arguing is there are times when a penis doesn't represent sexual penis, right? That, like, there are times when in the context of, say, you know, a fraternity hazing, it's not representative of sexual desire and that form of pleasure. That's not how dicks work. (laughs) (laughs) You know? I mean, to me, like... This book is written from the point of view of a woman who says that she chose her lesbian life, that it was that was a conscious turn away from the sexism she saw in every single male sexual partner virtually that she ever had, which is fine. I mean, the the thing I like the most about Mm -hmm. the book is that it does talk about agency and sexuality, which I think is largely missing. I really do agree with her that sexuality is more complicated than just this is how I landed and this is what I am. 
I don't think that men invest in heteronormativity more than they invest in breasts and vaginas. I've never heard a man say that. And so to me, the biggest problem with this book is that there's seemingly an arbitrary approach to what you accept from other people and what her theories impose on them. So she accepts straight guys who say that they're straight. This is this is not an argument that she ever has. Identity is identity and it is what you are. But she says, for example, hazing is more pleasurable than it's made out to be. So you're saying why doesn't she in that instance, then why doesn't she take their word for it when they say it's yeah, not sexual? Exactly, exactly. Yeah. Especially because we have a history of straight of men saying that they're straight when in fact they're on the long path to coming out. If you interviewed me uh, 18 years ago, I would be one of those secure right. straight men who who had gay desires. Right. So, whereas now I'm not <laughs> because I'm gay. <laughs> But there also are kind of, to my mind, kind of two different categories of things we're talking about. Like there is like clandestine sexual encounter with other men. And then there's like, yeah, like hazing in a fraternity. These actually are, to my mind, two very different things. But she groups them all together as evidence for her claim, which ultimately I think is pretty nebulous. I mean, you said she wants to open up a conversation. And I think that's really what this book comes down to. Let's talk about male sexuality Mm -hmm. as being more fluid. But ultimately, by insisting that these guys are straight as they identify, it seems to me like we have a semantics argument. What is identity for? What, who, who is identity for? If I identify as straight, but I'm doing all of this gay shit, what use is it for me to tell you that I'm straight when in fact my behavior, my interests, my use to you may be completely different than that? The examples I found the most interesting were from Craigslist, and I wanted to get like the Jane Ward version versus the rich version. Yeah, so I'm more than happy to. <laughs> That's uh-huh. the biggest problem I had with the book, I would say. Okay, so there are these Craigslist casual encounters ads yes. where it's like this hilariously broy language. He's like, oh, dude, I'm just looking for another guy to come over and we'll talk about our girlfriends and we'll jerk each other off. As she puts it, it's sort of this weird way of performing heterosexuality in multiple ways. They're talking about their girlfriends. They're just bros drinking beer. Well, it is a way of performing bro-ness. Yeah. I don't know if it's necessarily, you could say, a way of performing heterosexuality. I think right? she, well, conflates, she, says, she yeah. conflates the yeah. two a little bit. Absolutely. But so is your theory that a guy who posts an ad like that, who really does, like, is happily in a relationship with his girlfriend, you're just saying he's not acknowledging that he's a little bit bisexual? Yeah, absolutely. Or mm-hmm. she completely um, refutes the idea that it could possibly be a gay guy that's using this language to get what he wants when I have infinite firsthand examples of guys who lied mm-hmm. to get what they wanted. I, I mean, it's just good strategy to be like, I'm a straight dude, let's come and mm-hmm. like... Right, because who doesn't want to fuck a straight man, right? Yeah, yeah. exactly, <laughs> exactly. Um, and, and on top of the fact that, like, I, I, I found way too much investment in these Craigslist ads in terms of, like, how sexuality functions. These are fantasies guys are typing up. These That's not necessarily how, how the hookup goes down, mm-hmm. if it even happens. Because here's the problem. Okay, so she appoints this study, this really fascinating study, worthwhile mm-hmm. study, awesome study, by uh, Brandon Andrew Robinson and David A. Mouskovitz called The Eroticism of Internet Cruising as Self-Contained Behavior, a Multivariate Analysis of Men Seeking Men Demographics and Getting Off Online, which is a study about guys who essentially post on Craigslist to get off. Like that's what they would basically jerk off to, looking at the ads, posting the ads, replying to the ads. 
So it itself is like the literary erotica yeah, of the yeah, emails. Yeah, mm-hmm. substituted for porn, basically. Right. Um, what she said in the interview was that, of course, there's no way for me to verify that, but there have been a couple of sociologists who have contacted these men and asked for an interview with them, and have reported that many of them do identify as straight in their lives. The men in this study that's cited in the book... identified it as as heterosexual. That's not many. I'm not trying to tear down anybody's Mm -hmm. self-identity, but I don't understand why in the book she just refuses to call this bisexual. I just don't get it. Bisexual is a very functional term. It seems to me like gay and straight and bisexual are all terms people are afraid of in the same way that people are afraid of feminism, that word. Even when they're functionally feminist, they just hate that word in the baggage. Mm-hmm. Well, sorry, we, we we simplify with language. We have words are symbols. They're not they don't describe complexity. They don't describe everything about you. Just because you don't think of yourself as bisexual doesn't mean you aren't. And in fact, it could mean that you're a fucking coward and you need to stand up and Mm -hmm. join the group. Well, do you think that it's possible for people to be in any meaningful way genuinely straight and still have a couple of encounters or a series of encounters with men? Or do you think everybody should be called bisexual if that happens? No. I I think it's possible to have encounters. I I don't think that like one thing necessarily destroys everything. I think if you're doing it often enough, why are you so intent on calling yourself straight? Why is it so important for these guys to call themselves straight? Why? Because we live in a homophobic society where it's not, we're still not fully okay Mm. to be gay. That's why. I guess, I mean, the only sort of counter example I struggle with is if there's like a happily married family man in the suburbs and like the just to engage in some stereotypes. Just yes. to engage in some stereotypes. <laughs> a Republican, perhaps. They only live in the suburbs, really, the happily exactly. married. <laughs> right. And he, you know, he's built a life and he's happy with it. He loves his wife and he happens to be into this thing that he does once in a while. Her whole thing is sexual orientation is a lot more than what you do and to whom. Like, let him call himself a straight guy. Who cares? So I guess you're saying that she's imposing labels on people. I could see a counter argument where you're imposing a label on that guy. But but like I said, why? What would? How does him calling himself straight help me understand his life? It's interesting because she sort of says that being straight is essentially like a cultural thing. That like this guy is culturally straight even though he's, like, having sex with men. I mean, by that same reasoning, you could say a gay male couple or a female couple are culturally straight. Ultimately, I felt like the book is kind of like, what does any word mean then? If, <laughs> everything, if everything everybody says is acceptable and you take it at face value, what is the point of talking at all? I know, Rich, you get that, like, weird existential, like, you're like, the floor just fell out when you're reading this, which is part of the weird pleasure of it for me, although I totally understand why it would be also deeply frustrating to you. But to me, I felt like it's just some sort of, like, crazy mental experiment. They're like, can my brain jump this way? Yeah. The funny thing, though, is that I think there's so many, particularly in the way the media has picked up on it and run the sort of excerpts and interviews, in a really a lot of false equivalencies. Like, we keep on getting that girls can make out at a party. Why can't guys give each other <laughs> the so-called bro job? <laughs> right. But, like, there's a big difference between two chicks making out at a bar and them going down on each other in private. <laughs> right? I would even be willing to give straight guys their label of straight if they had, a like, a whole-is-a-whole philosophy. If, mm. if, they're, if they're just intent on, like, sort of fucking and getting off however. Yeah. What of the guys who are doing the sucking? Is that altruism? What, what is that? Mm. You know, is it, I mean. It's interesting because. It's very sweet. A lot of yeah, very sweet yeah, men. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'll just, very, very I'll just donate my time. Doesn't mean I'm gay. <laughs> it just means I'm generous. It's also in those scenarios that um, 
why I don't understand why we drop the possibility that there's like even if we accept that there's straight men having gay-ish sex, why it can't be a straight man and a closeted gay man, or that we assume that both of those actors are straight because one is straight, or because right. they happen to both be invested in the idea that they're straight. I think the thing that was simultaneously like in a weird way interesting, but also why you can't like get to these sort of issues that Rich brings up is because we don't really hear that many of the men's voices in this book. She's sort of functioning like a Jane Goodall, except the key being that like Jane Goodall could not speak to her subjects. <laughs> but <laughs> men are capable of speaking if we like yes. try to interview them about their lives. Yes, yes. And on top of that, that... <laughs> which is part of side note, the pleasure for me of like, I mean, this is so that <laughs> I'm like, ha like, right. we're going to apply men, the yeah. female mind right. onto your penis. What are you going to do about are you it? Saying, she's woman explaining. She erased she's, the voices of straight white men. Yes, she's she woman explaining. She's woman explaining. You know what? You just said exactly why it was a fun book for me. It was <laughs> my fair. first experience I, with you know what? That that is the that is my favorite interpretation you could possibly give of the book. I, I give you this book then. You, you win, Jane wins. So like among straight guys, there's this like me and my friends at 31, we still make sort of weird homoerotic jokes that are probably a little bit mm-hmm. offensive. There's like, like it's weird for me to be like, I love my friends. Yeah. Like I love my male, right. I've been knowing them since I'm 15 and I genuinely love them. But even as I say that, I'm probably like flushing. You are a little bit. Which is like, <laughs> which, is, which is fucked up. But she didn't interview sort of frat bros, but mm-hmm. like other people have. Yeah. And they're like, it's just like you, you feel so close to your bros and like the way what you've been through them together. And even though that's like very far from me, like I, I identified something there. Yeah. There's some missing vocabulary to talk about like straight male friends. So before we move on to our second topic, I also wanted to talk about that white in the subtitle. Since I actually haven't read the book, Jesse, I just read your interview. What relevance is the race? Like how does race play in this context? Yeah, so it's sort of a privilege argument. She's saying that if you're a black or a Latino guy and you have sex with other um, men on the on the down low, as it's called, sort of in the literature, people will start saying, okay, what is it about black or Latino culture that, that forces you underground like that? There's got to be something about, quote unquote, your people that, that make you do that. She says, why don't we ask questions about, you know, what it is about white heterosexual culture that, that causes them to do this, which... Um, yeah, I mean, it's I can see it being provocative, but it seems like a somewhat straightforward point that we should just investigate everything. Does it seem like a substantively different phenomenon for white men to be engaging in this kind of behavior? She says that white men are able to sort of get away with this, like you said, you know, the, the unquestioned. It's chalked up to boys will be boys. And she's saying, no, there is a sexuality there. However, it's not gay. It seems like she's kind of perpetuating the same function that she's talking about. Do you think that's true that there's a more boys will be boys attitude in white culture than other cultures? Things like frat stuff, yes. Prison sex, I really don't think that's confined to just whites. Yeah. I mean, you know, I watched Oz. (laughs) (laughs) It was a good documentary. (laughs) (laughs) I have to say, I was kind of hoping as we recorded this that there'd be way more like hot, straight guy-on-guy story. First person. You, you mean telling? when Jesse and I were I making the out second half, yeah. I thought yeah. the second half was going to be me and David. Just <laughs> call, I think it turned to David automatically. I'm like, you know all you your... You have stories. You have all Why your you prep, stories. Well, it's like all your like prep school friends that, uh-huh. you know... There's one guy in particular who it actually sort of breaks my heart because he um, he had this whole... His whole temperament was so conservative and upright and like student body presidency, And... I f- it feels now in retrospect like that was formed totally as a self-loathing mechanism against his own sexuality. And now that he's out, he still has that personality and he still has that temperament. But mm. it's like he's at war with, you know, it's just like this really, I don't know, really crazy phenomenon. 
I, I think that Ward would forgive a lot of that, as she does with people like Larry Craig and Ted Haggard. I mean, she doesn't exactly say people were wrong for calling bullshit on Ted Haggard, but she says that what he preached fell completely in line with his life, that he had uh, an indiscretion and gave way to sin momentarily. But it's like, no, he's a working example of how Mm -hmm. impossible his rhetoric is to follow. What bullshit it is. The destruction that gay men do to gay men by hiding in the shadows. Yeah. By just lying. By being hypocrites. And also she says that Ted Haggard identifies as hetero when in 2011 he told GQ that if he were younger, he would identify as bisexual. So, like, it's like, what are you talking about? She's saying that homosexual desire is is present in pretty much everybody based on, like, Freud and that and that somehow right. through your parents, it gets Because we all out. think that Freud is completely reliable. I mean, right. but that, this is the <laughs> foundation of her argument, though, yeah. right? Yeah. I mean, Welcome that, to this the is, academy. It's yeah, like... <laughs> yeah it, it is only through disciplined conformity to societal norms, typically directed by parents, that young children's sexual impulses are redirected toward a sanctioned and most often singular object of desire. This is where sort of, like, real social science collides with the academy because like something like that you could totally hear something like oh my god that makes perfect sense like it explains societal structures if as it turns out some people are just born straight like some of these sort of social scientific facts could just be really inconvenient and then like you read something like that it's just like how would you how would you disprove it how do you evaluate it it's just do you have a sense as the person who sort of has one foot in the academic world about how I thought you were going to say one rec- foot or... in the straight <laughs> and one foot in... <laughs> 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 you're a little bit straight and you're a little bit academic right. no but um how it's a wide stance. in sort yeah. of <laughs> how in sort of like gender studies or in academia this book has been received i've actually and i've been mostly watching the the sort of um public reaction online, mm-hmm. which has been interesting. I, I do think, like, she noted one finding that ran contrary to feminism. And and I think people approach these questions from a different way, because I think, maybe this sounds terrible, but not every social scientific finding about sexuality is going to be in line with feminism, or is yeah. going to be in line with sort of the stories we're currently telling ourselves about gay rights and stuff like that. So we've been talking about um, straight men having sex with other straight men. Now let's <laughs> move on to our next subject, which is Tinder and the dating apocalypse. Maureen, I know this article horrified you especially. This sort of immediate Venn diagram of the types of reactionary things that people can write about modern life. And this one hits my three least favorite, which is technophobia, disgust with like millennials' lives being over, and like revulsion with quote-unquote hookup culture. Right. And this one is all of them. So this is an article by Nancy Joe Sales in yes. Vanity Fair. And which was about basically Tinder and how it's leading us to... It's literally called the dating apocalypse. And each section is like, sex is so easy. I call it the dating apocalypse, says a single woman in New York. All the men are getting whatever they want. And it's like, it felt like it's just like from another era. I understand that these sort of are part of our like erotic landscape at this point. But they're part of the erotic landscape to the point that I think everybody now also recognizes that dating apps and online dating are just like a piece of the way we socialize and that it doesn't erase every other way of meeting people. But this is like every every moral yeah. or cultural panic is like that. You know, it's an innovation. It's yes. a new thing. It'll change things a little bit, but it's like it fits in some other pattern. And like mm-hmm. it's like video games, comic books. It's always like this is the new thing that's going to wreck everything. And but Jesse, one of the things that's interested me so much about this story and the way that it's been talked about, and I know you made this point. I think a few other people have made this point. It's like 
millennials actually aren't having more sex than the people that are older no. than them. I mean, no, we've we talked already, about this on the show. We've already like, debunked the whole yeah. like, hope culture myth, have we not? So it's like, what is she actually talking about? <laughs> if you read the article, she just talked to, she probably talked to 150 people between the ages of 18 and 30. And she found the guy who says he's had sex with 40 women on Tinder in the last year. She found another guy who, who guarantees that he can find someone to have sex with by midnight. Which reminded me of um, in The Big Lebowski when Walter says he can get a toe by 3 p.m. <laughs> it's just funny it's to just see like, these things presented in a way that is like supposed to make us panic. Yeah. It, um, well, that, there is to me. There's a way that I can see it. Like I could, straight people. <laughs> what? Forty people in a year, like right. try a month. <laughs> exactly. But I, there is there to me. There is I can see a panic on like because it it does broadcast a new standard that is like to yeah. say you, you know even if people aren't fucking any more than they used to we do now have this expectation that they are fucking more than they used to which means if you're fucking only as much as you used to you're probably going to be disappointed in how many people you're going home with but it's all based on like they've all they've done these classic studies where every college student thinks that every other college yeah. student is having more sex yeah no exactly yeah. that's depressing oh it's totally depressing but it's also <laughs> like you need to realize that because articles like this get written everyone thinks everyone is constantly fucking at every moment and it's just not true some people are Constantly fucking. Most pe- <laughs> some people are never fucking, and some people are right in the fucking Most middle. Most people, yeah. It's also why, do, like, I know so many people in committed relationships who met on. I know yeah. one guy married to a guy he met on Grinder. Friends who met on Tinder, OK Cupid. These people are day. invisible. She makes it seem like no one in their twenties in New York is in a relationship. Like, I know. I where was she hanging it. out? Much like all parts of dating, when you ask people about it, they tell you the negative components because that's just what people do. They bitch and moan about dating, you know, and you're like, how is your love life? Like, oh, God, it's a wreck, you know, unless you're in some like committed relationship, in which case you're null and void for the purpose of a person understanding dating, right? (laughs) Well, you're also probably (laughs) complaining if you're in a committed relationship. Exactly. You're just complaining about something different. And like... I don't see why um, a tool that enables dating, like OkCupid or any of those, why it would be any less humiliating and degrading and depressing than every other component of dating, right? People feel humiliated and depressed and degraded every time they're trying to hit on people. It's so inspiring. I know, really. But I love dating. But it, but it does serve the function of making that <laughs> dealing with that humiliation easier and making yeah. people easier to talk to. That is the entire reason why these things exist, mm-hmm. to, to facilitate. Um, yes. Did I say this last time? I say it all the time. <laughs> uh, like the difference between grinder and meeting in person is like the difference between seamless and going out to eat. Yeah. Uh, you know, both have their strengths. They just function differently. Yeah, I prefer to go out to eat, but I'll order nachos. But to seamless. your point, Maureen, about not people forgetting how to talk, like, isn't it weird how nobody's willing to call a restaurant to order food anymore? <laughs> like, this is true, actually. You know, what? I always hated that. Though <laughs> I still do that. I still call. I can't. I, I mean, is that true that nobody? Cause I, also, I would. There are definitely okay. restaurants I would not call. Is but some would of this order like from Unseamless or whatever? Is some of this New York glasses? Because like a lot of this story took place in New York, and I, I mean, maybe everyone across the country, no one's calling or talking face to face. Wait, okay. Anymore. I will say it's not that people lose their ability to speak face to face because I have lost my ability to speak on a phone. But speaking on a phone oh, is yeah. inherently weird. It's to so talk weird. and stare into emptiness. Yeah. Yeah. it's just that in previous <laughs> generations, before texting, they didn't know how weird it was. On the other hand, when I see people walking down the street do FaceTiming and like actually looking at each other, that seems so crazy too. Jesse, I know you were interested in like the erectile dysfunction part of it, which is like a weird third <laughs> act. Uh, right. Yeah, she goes to a, a sorority house or like a house shared by a bunch of sorority sisters in Delaware. 
they're complaining about the men having erectile dysfunction sometimes. And she like she makes this big hand wavy argument. It's like some people say it's diet, some people say it's this, but maybe it's hookup culture. You know, in terms of looking at this scientifically, you're talking to a group of of girls who are hooking up with sexually inexperienced men in inevitably alcohol soaked situations. And there's a thing called uh, whiskey dick. And there's a reason it's called that. So to take that and then jump from that to, oh, hookup culture is maybe giving men erectile dysfunction is just like, I think exactly the sort of thinking that is pissing off a lot of people about this article. Also, I was saying to Jesse as we were walking over, like Nancy Jo Sales wrote so many articles when I was a teenager for New York Magazine that like alarmed uh, all of my parents, like all of my friends' parents. It was oh, like, that like uh, yeah, there was like give me Harvard or give me death, like prep school gangsters. Uh, <laughs> it was like a whole genre in the '90s. Like this is like she gets the older generation anxious about what's coming up next. This is like God her thing. Is. I think it's easy to make fun of these cultural panics, but you really, when you make everything about, like, holy shit, everything's worse than it used to be, like, you really miss an opportunity to actually figure out what's going on. So, like, internet dating is obviously changing the way people have sex and the way they hook up, the way they meet people. But if you, there was never a good old days where people weren't sexually unsatisfied or didn't know how to find a partner or men weren't acting like dicks. And it's a shame because these are such fascinating subjects. I, I think we just need to talk about them in smarter ways. I feel so positive about everything. It's funny to see the like sort of like <laughs> constant like tech press, like everything's better. It's getting better. It's getting better versus the sort of like cultural, like pop culture writer, like, oh, my God, it's the apocalypse. And like, how could everything not be both? How could Tinder not have like be wonderfully freeing and enabling for some people who are able to find a partner they couldn't find otherwise? And yet also a little bit depressing because that's human nature. Are you actually depressed by it, though? I feel like you're so positive. No, I love it. I mean, I know that it's stressful for some people, these things. But like, I have to But so is dating. But I also think that there's so many people that are enabled to find partners that struggled with it before they had online dating. Yeah. Like, the Internet is a wonderful, amazing tool for so many people to find each other. But that's so, like, so the actual story is, like, everyone uses these tools in different ways. And people have vastly different experiences. That is a, that's a boring story. Because it's, like, nuanced and complicated. It's, no, (laughs) Tinder's ruining everything. Guys can't get it up. Like, that's just much easier. I do have to say, when choosing a dating app, my new theory is that it's not about the algorithm or the way it works or anything. It is 100% about gaming the user base of the group that you want to use. So, for instance, I realized that um, I was talking to someone about, they're like, oh, do you still use Tinder? And they're like, no, I don't use Tinder anymore. Everyone's done with Tinder. It's like, I really like happen right now or whatever. They're like, well, how does it work? And I was like, you know what? It doesn't matter how it works. What matters is that I don't want to use a dating app when it's super new because then it's all just like tech bros, right? It's like how many degrees away from the tech industry are the men you want to date? (laughs) And I want them about two waves away. So happen happens to be right there. But once it gets to like four waves away, then they've like become too dispersed for my demographic and I'm not finding the men I want anymore. So what's like the sign that they're they're like four waves away? Um, That is like it's like that's when I start seeing like meatheads with tattoos and Uh like that kind of thing. Yeah, Um, that's when it's too far for me. Um, happen for me happens to right now be like that exact sweet spot and for the friends that I'm like give me your phone gonna download this gonna find you some dates now that happens to be the one that's working right now but I actually think it has nothing to do with its algorithm or its structure or anything it's the same as the bar that works best for picking up guys isn't about how delicious the drinks are completely like that might bait them and bring them in or get people there but it's just the bar with the right people so that's it for Sex Lives Um, our producer today is Sam Dingman Thanks also to Henry Malofsky, Laura Mayer, and Andy Bowers at Panoply. Special thanks to Rich Joswiak and Jesse Single for coming by. 
For Maureen O'Connor and an absent Allison Davis, I'm David Wallace-Wells. We'll talk to you next time when Allison will be back, thank God. Thanks for listening. <laughs>